So I'm going to catch up real quick on our story because we're in, in Exodus chapter 32. We, it's been quite amazing what happened last week. So God has been up on the mountain with Moses, or Moses has been up on the mountain with God, and received for 40 days, and the people were just waiting. And during this time, the people were tempted uh, to, to make an idol, and they did make an idol, uh, that they said, this is the God that led us out of Egypt, and they made the idol out of their earrings, and they've broken God's law. What was the first commandment God gave them? Have no other gods, right? I pretty much, they broke that one. They couldn't even get past the first commandment. In 40 days, they're already head over heels in sin. They've broken his law. They've worshipped an idol made of their own hands. They've rejected God, and they've offended God. They could not wait for God. Um, and uh, they, they saw that they needed something. They saw that something was kind of empty in their lives while God was up on the mountain, and, and so they made something with their own hands that they could follow. They, they made something their own minds could comprehend. Instead of waiting for the living and invisible God, they had to have something they could see. And that was, that was the whole source of idolatry. That's what idolatry was. That's what we learned about last week. They tried to fill the void in their lives by uh, what their minds and their hands could produce, something that they could make. And so, so basically what they said is, what's missing in my life is more of me. It's a very self-centered thing, this idolatry. So that's what brings us to where we're at right now. God has let Moses uh, know that the people are down dancing naked around this golden calf, worshiping it and committing all sorts of idolatry. And that is the cliffhanger we left on last week. And now we get to find out what happens. Are you ready? ready. All right, verse 10. Now, therefore, God says to Moses, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and I'll make of you a great nation. Let me alone is how God starts out. What does that mean? You see something in the Bible and you're like, you got to ask the question, why was this written? If God is asking Moses, leave me alone, or basically get out of my way, is what he's saying, where had Moses stationed himself? Between God and the people. Moses had put himself right between an angry God and a sinning people. Is that a safe place for Moses to be? No, but it is a very loving place for Moses to be. This shows us the typical work and love of Jesus. Moses is going to be such a beautiful picture of Jesus today. I hope that you're just, you're, your heart wells up with, with just thanksgiving after we read what Moses does today because he is such a beautiful picture of Jesus. Moses knows how angry God is more than anyone else in the world or earth right now. He's just spent 40 days with God, and now God has literally told him how angry he is. He's told him about his wrath and his intention or what he should do, which is destroy this people. And Moses steps right in front of him. Moses stands up between God's wrath and the people who deserve God's wrath. Only Moses stands between a guilty people and God's wrath. Now I'm going to change the name. Only Jesus stands between 
a guilty people and God's wrath. It seems like Moses was always doing this. In the book of Exodus, as we've been reading, Moses has has consistently done this exact same thing. When the people at at, uh, the Red Sea were sinning, Moses stood up for them at that point and cried out for them. At the bitter springs of Marah, the people were complaining, and Moses went to bat for them then and said, God, what do we do to, to cure these waters? And God said, cast the tree in. At Rephidim, when they had no water, Moses pled for the people and said, God, these people need you and need a miracle of water. And then when they were at war with Amalek and the Amalekites, Moses stood there pleading with God with his hands up for victory and God gave it. Every single time we see, but this is the most serious of all the times that Moses stands up and Moses will not fail these people. So great. Even when God offered to make a new nation out of Moses, where, where he would be the figurehead of a whole new people, let's, let's get rid of all these people, God suggests to Moses. Moses chooses still to stand up for the people instead of for himself. I mean, that's a pretty good offer. Hey, Moses, let's just, let's let, let's kill all the people and, and we'll let you be the father and everyone, nobody will remember Father Abraham. It'll always be Father Moses. But he uses his position to bless a group of ungrateful sinners instead of to advance himself. For now, for today, Moses is this perfect and wonderful picture of who Jesus is as our perfect mediator or lawyer or advocate. Now, next week, we're going to see Moses fails big time. Moses gets in his flesh, and he's no longer a picture of Jesus. He loses that ability to be a picture of Jesus when he gets in his flesh, which is another cool lesson that we'll talk about next week. But for this week, he's an amazing picture. And it seems like this was kind of the whole point of of Moses' life, was to picture Christ, was to be a picture of him. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says, By faith... Moses, when he became of age, rage, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. So all these points in Moses' life, especially the big one where he chose to be the deliverer, they, Moses trusts in God, And so as he trusts in God, he is a picture to the world of Jesus. As you guys trust in God, you become the greatest witness of Jesus that this world could ever ask for. That is what he's asking you to do. Trust in him. Pray to him. Trust in him. And you will be used. So even now, Moses declines to be the head of this new nation, and instead he wants to give his life for this stiff-necked and crazy people called Israel. And this shows us, of course, the perfect way that Jesus loves us. In Philippians chapter 2, it says, Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. 
That is what Jesus did. He said, he could have stayed up in heaven. He could have enjoyed the pleasures of being in heaven forever. But Jesus chose to humble himself and go to the cross so that our sin could be forgiven, even though we are so wonderful and we deserve it so much. Yeah, you're all like, not me. No, we are so stiff-necked and we are so sinful. And yet Jesus chose to come and represent us on the cross. Thank you, Jesus is right. Praise the Lord. So question for you guys. Why did God send Moses down from the mountain in verse 7? Someone look up in their Bibles, up in verse 7, and read that verse out for me. Just someone read it out loud. Okay, so God told Moses, go get down, you go to these people. Why did God do that? Was it just to show Moses what the people were doing? I think God knew that Moses would intercede for the people. I think God planned this whole thing And that's why he said to Moses, go get down for your people whom you brought out of the land of you have corrupted themselves. God sent Moses down from the mountain, which is a picture of heaven. God sends Jesus down from heaven and says, your people have, I'm going to give you these people. God sent Moses to be the mediator between him and the people just like God sent Jesus to be our mediator. Not just to sit back and watch him destroy us, although that's what we deserve. Although, just like the children of Israel dancing around the golden calf, we all do the same thing, and we're all so guilty of that sin of idolatry. We've all rejected and turned away, gone our own way, gone astray. And yet, God didn't, doesn't want to just destroy us. He sends a mediator before him. And, he's, and, and look, God gives the people to Moses, placing them completely in his hands. Your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, Moses. I'm sure Moses is like, me? What? And this, it's amazing because this is exactly like John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, we have a conversation and prayer recorded for us between Jesus and his father. And in that chapter, they have this whole big long conversation about what they're doing for us. And the same thing happens that happens here, happens in John chapter 17. Um, in, in verse 9, Jesus says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those who you have given me. Do you see that? Just like God gave the people to Moses and said, they're your people. You tell me what to do, Moses. I'd like to destroy them. What is your heart? And Moses intercedes for them. Jesus says, man, I have a heart for these people that you have given me the people that are about to nail Jesus on the cross, the people that do nothing but disobey and are stiff-hearted and rebel, Jesus says, I love them and I'm praying for them. 
So then what happens in our text here is that Moses is going to give the people right back to God and he's going to say, no, your people. And in his prayers, he's going to give them right back to God. Just like in John, again, in John 17, 9, for for they are yours, he says. You gave them to me, but they are yours, Jesus says, of us. And this all shows us the work that Jesus does on our behalf when God gives the people to him, Jesus does something with that. He doesn't just say, okay, uh, I don't know what to do. No, Jesus takes us, he cleanses us, he restores us, and then he presents us back to God, his Father, which is what God wanted the whole time. Us. God wanted us. But not the rebellious, idolatrous version of us. He wanted the us that he created, that he loves, which is the pure us, the the us that has been washed in the blood of his son, the us, us that is clean and pure in his sight, the us that he can just welcome with open arms. That's what God's desire is most, us. And his son, Jesus, does that, presents us back to his father. These are your people now, God. Are you happy? And God says, oh yes, I am very pleased with what you have brought me. Isn't that cool, guys? Yeah, it's really cool. So let's look at how Moses mediates or how Moses lawyers for these people. Let's check it out. He's going to do three things. He's going to plead three things before God. In other words, in his opening statement before God in this trial of these guilty people, he is going to have three points to his opening argument. And his points will be number one, his grace, God's grace, the Father's grace. Number two, his glory. And number three, his faithfulness. So Moses, the lawyer, is going to present three arguments of why God should not destroy these people. His grace, his glory, and his faithfulness. And we're going to see, he's just going to lay these out. It's really cool. Uh, Nothing is going to be done by the people themselves. He's never going to call the people as a witness for themselves and say, why did you dance naked around the golden calf? He doesn't care why they did it. He already knows why they did it. Because they're stinking sinful. They're they're wicked and evil at the heart. They're idolatrous. He doesn't need to ask why, and he doesn't need to try to, like like a sleazy lawyer, try to wiggle his way around the rules and say, well, you didn't technically say no golden calves. You just said no idols. And they could have thought this was just a cheeseburger, you know, that they were worshiping. He didn't try to figure out ways around it. He does these three things. He pleads three arguments with God. Now check it out. So Moses pled with the Lord, pleaded with the Lord God, and said, Lord, and and let me stop right there. What does it mean to plead with God? Prayer. It's just prayer, okay? So Moses is praying for the people and he's interceding for them. This is a great lesson for us. Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? 
So this first argument is God's grace. How did they become his people? Moses is reminding God, hey, these are your people who are called by your name, who you brought out. And how did they become that? God did it for them. They never earned it, but it was by grace that they were saved through faith. And do you remember how that happened? It was called Passover. On the night of Passover, God told them, if you kill a lamb and put its blood on your, on your doorposts, I will pass over. So you have to hear my word. You have to believe what I'm saying is true. And, that, and you have to believe in the sacrifice of the lamb and you will be saved. Who does that make you think of? Obviously, Jesus. By faith, they were saved. They, they couldn't boast in it. They didn't earn it. God chose them and redeemed them all on his own with his own power. He brought them out of Egypt through the 10 mighty plagues that he, he had brought. And, and basically kicking and screaming the whole time, they were saying, we don't want to go. Well, we kind of want to go, but we don't really know what's going on. And we don't really like you. And we don't like them. And they were just so stiff-necked the whole time. They certainly didn't. They weren't grateful. They weren't thankful. These are ungrateful, unworthy, unholy, but they're still God's people. Why? Because God chose them and because they had faith. However small their faith was, they chose to kill a lamb and put its blood on their doors, and so they were God's people by grace. Not by works, by grace. Because their works would say, you're lame and you don't deserve God. But Grace says, but you believed. And because you believed by faith, I will not deny my name. I am going to continue to rescue you. Moses pleads, first of all, the grace of God. If God delivered them before, he can do it again. And if they didn't earn it before, they won't be able to earn it now either. This is what Moses is saying. God, you can't destroy them because this whole arrangement is an arrangement of your grace. Why would you destroy them? It doesn't match up with your character. Good points. These are good points, Moses, okay? Let's look at number two. He says, why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? So this plead, this prayer, is about his glory. And for God, this is an irresistible plea. He, Moses is so smart here to plead the glory of God because God's glory is so great. And anyone who would ask God to do something for his own glory will basically never be refused. If you pray for God to do something so that he is glorified, God says, that's a good idea. That's a great idea. And the answer to that prayer is going to be yes. So, how do we get involved in praying like that? Well, we gotta, we got to draw near to God so we know what gives him glory, what brings him glory. God is glorified most by saving unworthy people. Isn't that crazy? He is glorified most by saving unworthy people. If he saved, who's a, who's a really righteous person? Like, besides Jesus. Mother Teresa, there you go. I'm glad you didn't say Trump, but <laughs> not that kind of church. Um, 
if God saved Mother Teresa and Hitler, which one shows his glory more? Right, it would have been Hitler. I don't know if either one of those two people are saved or going to heaven. I don't know. Because good works don't send you to heaven. And bad works can be forgiven. So, it's crazy. But, God is most glorified when unworthy people are saved. And that's what Moses argues with God. Hey, the fact that they're being such idiots, God, the fact that they're dancing naked around a golden calf, means you're going to be so glorified when you save them and when you deliver them. When we, we are unworthy, when we are unworthy, we qualify to bring him glory. Isn't that great news? That's why the gospel is such awesome news and going to church should be the best thing in your life because you get to hear and be reminded that your lameness just makes God's glory so much better. It glorifies God. Every other place in the world that you go and I go, we are looked down upon for our weakness. But in God's world, in God's kingdom, and in God's church, our weakness brings God more glory. Our physical weaknesses, our mental handicaps, everything that we go through, when God saves us, he is most glorified by saving a bunch of ragtag weirdos. He loves it. And he's most glorified by it. His name is so great, it must be honored. In Ezekiel, there's a couple, three verses that I'm going to read to you, uh, just about God speaking about this. He says, But I acted for my name's sake, that it should not be profaned before those Gentiles among whom they were, in whose sight I have made myself known to them, to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And again, he says, But I acted for my name's sake, that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles, in whose sight I brought them out. And again, the same chapter, Nevertheless, I withdrew my hand and acted for my name's sake, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the Gentiles, Gentiles, in whose sight I brought them out. What do we see there? God is doing all this for his own purposes. He chose you and saved you, not because you needed saving, but because he is most glorified by saving losers. That's right. Amen. He is most glorified. This changes the way we evangelize and share the gospel with people. We don't have to be... Uh, yes, people are suffering and dying, but that is not the primary reason why we go and share the gospel with them. We go and we share the gospel because... God is glorified by saving losers, saving those who are lost, saving those who are sinful. And we can bring this message to the most sinful with all the boldness in the world and say, guys, do you want to be saved? Because God will save you. Jesus has done all that you need. So be bold in sharing the gospel, guys. Not because you're trying to rescue people from being drug addicts or rescue people from whatever their situation is, but because it glorifies God. This is the best way to share the gospel with people. In Psalm 23, verse 3, he says, He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Okay, so your own life, not just in sharing the gospel, but in my life, it says, he restores my soul and he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So why is he going to change you and make you walk in righteousness and change your behavior? Why is he going to sanctify you? 
for his own glory. He doesn't care so much about your life getting better. He cares about him, himself getting glory because that's the way the world works. God deserves glory. So John 17, 1, Jesus, uh, that beginning of that chapter where Jesus and God have this conversation, Jesus spoke and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. Do you see the whole point of God saving sinners is so Jesus can be glorified and then the son can be glorified or the father can be glorified? It has nothing to do with us having a better life. God saves us and delivers us from sin and cleans us and trains us to live godly lives because it glorifies Jesus and it glorifies the Father. How amazing is that? Does that not take pressure off you to think, I have to be the best Christian in the world? I have to figure this out? No, you don't. It doesn't have anything to do with you. Just abide in Christ and he is glorified by transforming you. He'll get it done. It is so free to realize this. So freeing. God's glory and his will are of most importance when Jesus mediates for us. He's saying, I want to glorify you, Father. And that's why I'm going to step in between your wrath and these sinful people because it gives you glory. Such cool stuff. So look what it says here. He says, turn from your fierce... Moses uh, pleads to God. This is the third one. Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and all this land I have spoken of I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the third plead, the third prayer Moses prays is of God's faithfulness. Look what he says. He said, God, you made promises. You made promises. And promises are a big deal. What would happen if God destroyed these people and did not fulfill his promise? He would be a liar. So Moses has him. Moses got him. Moses has the argument, right? He has won. And God is so happy. God didn't want to destroy them. That's the whole situation here. God was not looking for reasons to destroy him. He is looking for his people to understand his heart that he will not destroy them and to show them what a mediator could do for them. And this mediator will eventually be Jesus. And Jesus, what he does is he pleads those promises of God. God cannot lie, and he made these promises. God desires to remind him of his promises, the people. And, and it's not that God forgot about his promise. He doesn't need a mediator to remind Oh, yeah, I did say that. I forgot that I said I would never destroy you in anger. I forgot that's not what's going on here. He wants us to learn that he will always keep his word and we can depend on him explicitly. And that's why he orchestrates this whole event so that Moses can intercede, so that the people will know that they have a mediator 
who is wonderful, who will not let them down, Moses, who, will, who is a picture of Jesus. Moses doesn't make the people make promises to God. Did you notice that? Moses never said, okay, guys, I'm going to intercede for you, okay? But I need you to tell me you're not going to do this again. What would have happened if he did that? They would have done it again. They would have failed again. How many times have you promised God, I will never do this again? And we always break those promises. And even if we don't break those promises, it doesn't matter because God never asked you to make that promise. He never asked you to do that. The entire new covenant, the entire gospel says nothing about you promising stuff to God. It's about what God promised to do for you. Jesus says, I will be everything that you need. I will do it all for you. And I'm not looking for your promises. So who is convincing our hearts that we need to make promises to God? The enemy. He is the one saying, you know, this would all be better if you just promised not to do it again. And then because he knows that you're going to fail, what's he going to say the moment you fail? Look what you did, you little jerk. He just he is so slick in his dealings. He tricks us up by something we think, oh, it's good that I promised God that I will obey him. I'm going to, you're, t- you, no, it is good that I say, God, I'm never going to do that again because my intention is right, right? No. We don't understand how corrupt we are. And so, when we say, I'm never going to do it again, we're saying, I don't need you, Jesus, to transform me. And I don't need to walk with you because I can self-source this entire obedience thing. I can do it all myself. So the enemy just wants us to keep going down that road. Yeah, yeah, keep trying to do it yourself. Keep doing it yourself. Keep giving your best effort. Keep promising more. You know what, God? You, you just didn't promise enough. That's why you failed. You weren't sincere enough. That's why you didn't succeed. You weren't sorry enough. That's why you failed. Those are all words of the enemy. Jesus says, I know you're a big failure. I'm not even talking to you right now. I'm talking to the Father about his promises, about his faithfulness, about his victory, you're just going to sit there and receive it, what I'm going to give you. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to do it all for you. That's what Jesus says. Is anyone else's heart being just stirred with love for Jesus right now? Man, so good what he does for us. Moses does not make the people make any promises, but they focus. he focuses 100% on the promises God has already made. I've heard people say, your faithfulness is what it's all about. And I just have to disagree as hard as I can. You do need to have faith, but it's not faith in your own faithfulness. It's faith in his faithfulness. That's what faithfulness is for you. I fear that many people think faithfulness means doing the things, doing all the right things, giving more, being more. And that's not what the definition of faithfulness is. It's I'm going to put my trust in him more. I'm going to trust his promises more. 
That's what growing in faithfulness would look like. So this may be the best example in the entire Bible of what it looks like to successfully intercede for someone or to mediate for someone. Number one, plead God's grace in this situation. Number two, plead God's glory in the situation. Number three, plead God's faithfulness in the situation. This is how to pray for people. And you guys have every right to pray this same exact way. This is written for our learning. Do you think this works, this mediation of Moses? Is it going to work? People are going to be saved and delivered, right? It works. This gets stuff done. Maybe our prayers don't get stuff done in this way. And we need to think, what am I praying? How am I praying? Am I praying for, the, for this person to get saved? We prayed for people to get saved, right? Did we pray because God's grace and God's glory and God's faithfulness will get it done? Or did we pray, Lord, maybe they deserve it? Maybe it's the right thing to do? Oh, it would be best for them. You know, there's so many ways we can just get off course on this, this heart that God wants to develop. In. God saved them not because they deserved to be saved, but that he saved them because it's what God is and who, and who God is and what God does. And if we intercede like Moses or like Jesus, it gets things done. Because it's God who does the things. So what is the result? The last verse that we look at today says, So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. Now does that mean God changed? I thought God was unchanging and could never have his mind changed. Well, this I believe was his plan all along. This was his plan. That through the faithfulness of the mediator and lawyer Moses, the loving lawyer Moses, that God would show his mercy and his grace to a sinning people. I think that was his plan all along. So when it says that God changed his mind, you can look at it and say, okay, he changed his mind, that makes sense. Or you can say, but it was probably his plan all along because he knew how it, all, it was all going to work out. All right, so what does this all mean to us? How are we going to conclude this and wrap this up and bring this all back to us? Remember that verse I read at the beginning? John, 1 John chapter, chapter 2, verse 1 says, My little children, these things are right to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Sin sucks. Sin is evil. And we choose evil when we choose to sin. And you and I are always going to struggle, struggle with temptation to sin because uh, we can make an idol out of anything. Like you might have victory over one sin and the next day you're going to be in something totally different, like a totally different sin. When our failure is seen, when we fall into sin, when we turn to something that is not pure and holy, what are we going to do? Hmm. In other words, put yourself in the position of the children of, e of Israel. Oh, why am I dancing naked around a golden calf? This is pretty bad. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Are we going to try and fix it? I was just taking a bath in a circle with no water. Are we going to try to make excuses? Are we going to try to say, 
Aaron made us do it. Are we going to try to blame someone else? Are we going to try to make up for it? Oh, yeah, I shouldn't have done that, so, hey, I'll go to church two weeks in a row. Will that make up for it? Hey, I'll give some extra money. Will that make up for it? Hey, I'll get up early and do some extra chores. Is that going to make up for it? Are we going to give our best to God and think that's going to make up for it? Just hope he forgets it? Are we going to whip ourselves with whips to show how sorry we are? Are we going to hit our faces with boards? Are we going to say 10 Hail Marys? What are we going to do? These are all the wrong questions. What are we going to do is the wrong question. The only real question that we need to ask is, what is God going to do about it? Because I am a sinner. What is God going to do about it? I can't change. What is God going to do about it? He'll do two things. And that's what we learn in this lesson today. Number one, God is going to judge our sin to be evil. He's going to say, I hate this sin. That sin needs to be punished. That sin drives. That sin is so unholy. That is so unlike me and unlike my perfect holiness, unlike my heart. That sin is disgusting, and I judge it to be evil, and it deserves death. God will say that. He's a holy God. If he doesn't say that, he ceases to be a holy God, and he just can't do that. He cannot say, oh, boys will be boys, just keep killing each other. He can't do that. He can't say that about any sin. He must judge it to be evil and sinful. That's the first thing he will do. And the second thing he will do is, Jesus, the Son of God, will stand up and he will choose to be the advocate for the sinner and he will stand between God's righteous judgment what we just described, and us. And he will say, yes, their sin is incredibly evil, but he will prove to us the love and the mercy of God by allowing us to be forgiven and go free as he bears the guilt that we deserved. He says, their sin is so wicked, God. It's so evil. How dare they come against you in that way and re reject you like that when you are nothing but right and love and holy? So please torture me and punish me and kill me on behalf of them because we love them. Even though they, they deserve such punishment, we love them. And Jesus stands up to do that for us. And those are the two things God does when we sin. Isn't that amazing? That's what God will do. So what will we do when we sin? We can't do anything. But we can relationship. And I'm using that as a verb, very wrongly, English majors. But relationship as a verb. We can relationship. We can't do anything, but we can engage with God with the two relational realities of humility and faith.
We talk about this all the time, but it's so amazing and key right here. Humility means what are we going to do when we sin? We just are going to confess our sin. They all see it already, God and Jesus, the lawyer and the judge, they all see it. And so would you remember the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector praying? Jesus told a story that there was a tax collector and he, uh, there was a Pharisee praying and he's like, thank you, God, that I'm not like this tax collector, that I'm not like, you know, he's such a sinner, but I do all these good things. And Jesus says, that guy, I hate him. He's so annoying. I reject him. But there was the tax collector who was a sinner. And what did the tax collector do? He made excuses for his sin? Nope. He just said, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. He fully confessed his sin to the Lord. So confession is an act of humility. It shows that we have a relationship with God based on humility. We know we were dancing naked around the calf. We know we were dancing naked around the calf. Are we making excuses that we weren't part of it? Do you think there were some people in the children of Israel who were like, I wasn't doing that? They all got caught with their pants down. And that is literally what is our situation every day. Are we going to just confess that we are sinners? That's humility. And then faith. Are we going to then put our confidence and trust in Jesus to be our mediator and our lawyer, our advocate? Are we going to trust that his love will save us even though we don't deserve it and we could never earn it? We can remember this story. We can remember how the people never asked Moses to intercede, but what did Moses do? He still interceded. What do they do with Moses like every other day? They complain about him. They're just awful to him. They're never like, Moses, thank you so much for spending 40 days and not eating anything for 40 days and giving us this wonderful news from God. They never say thank you. They never, like... Not nothing. They're just terrible, awful to him. But Moses is a picture of his love. Moses will not fail because Jesus will not fail. You and me. He won't fail. Even when we don't deserve it and even when we're not faith, th- thankful, he still won't fail us. And what does that make us? How does that change us? It makes us more thankful. It actually makes us thankful for all that he does because it's so free and it's so perfect in its love. Jesus cannot deny who he is. He can't deny God's holy anger at sin. He deals with it. He lets God take out the anger on him. And he also can't deny God's love and perfect love and his desire to forgive and restore his beloved sinning people. Jesus can't deny those things. So he lets God punish him and he offers that forgiveness and love freely to us. Thereby, thereby, he encompasses both parts of God's character, his righteous judgment and his gracious compassion. And he brings us into right relationship with God. I think we should praise Jesus forever and ever. I think all the people on the earth should know his love and his grace. I think they need to know his mercy and his power. I think let us love him, let us praise him, let us surrender everything to him. Let us give up everything to follow him. Let us have no other passion other than his kingdom. 
Let us repent of all self-seeking and all self-sufficiency and throw ourselves without reservation into his arms. Let us turn from every idol. Let us love what he loves and let us be filled with his heart and patience for other people. Let us be filled with his mercy and his grace and let us grow in the power of his grace. Let us walk intimately with God, humbly dependent upon Jesus for everything we could ever want or need. Sound like a plan? All right, so let's do it. Would you all stand with me as we pray? During this time, we usually have communion open, and it's available today um, so that we can um, remember the price that Jesus paid to give us such amazing love and forgiveness. So I invite everyone who believes to come down and, and uh, take it. Notice I didn't say everyone who's righteous or everyone who has done perfectly, but if you are a sinner, you qualify to come and take his promises and be clean, uh, be perfectly forgiven and right in God's sight. Um, Father, we want to come before you. We want to repent of so much. When we try to compare ourselves to other people, we may seem better or worse, but Lord, when we compare ourselves according to your holy laws and your holy statutes, Father, we fall so short. We are all sinners. And we could never measure up to the holy standard that you set for all humans. So, Father, we come in humility before you and we pray and we ask that you would intercede and mediate for us. And we are so, so thankful to hear that there is a mediator named Jesus who stands up for us and who offers your very flesh to be our uh, propitiation, that you let God take out your wrath and anger upon you and your body um, so that I could go free. And Father, we praise you. We accept it. Uh, Lord, we, we could never earn it or deserve it, but we can accept what you have done for us. And Father, forgive us for daily forgetting how much you have done for us, for daily walking in our own sufficiency. Father, we want to learn to live upon your faithfulness to feed upon your faithfulness, to read about your faithfulness in your word, and to believe every word that we read. Father, we need your spirit to teach us these things, and we know, God, that you will answer these prayers with yes and amen because they're according to your word, and they give you glory according to your grace and according to your faithful promises. We pray all these things. God, I pray for something very specific this week. I pray that we would be bold to share the gospel and to invite unbelievers and outsiders in to know you. Give us boldness, Father. I pray that fear would have no place in our hearts, but Lord, that we would trust you completely. And that, Lord, I pray that we would be people of prayer, that we would lay hold of your um, coat and we would not let go 
until you give us what we ask for according to your will, for your glory, according to your grace, and according to your promise, promises and faithfulness. Teach us how to pray. Teach us how to walk with you every day and to rejoice in what you do and not what we do. We are so thankful for each person that is here and each person watching online or listening online. And Father, I pray that we would all feel like uh, your body. We would feel your compassion today uh, for us. Thank you for washing us clean. In Jesus' name, all God's people say, Amen. Amen.